You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. The session was originally broadcast on July 26, 2023. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Q&A about business innovation and managing life. We had a short break there associated with our annual summer school and uh, summer high school program, but uh, now back. Um, let's see, all kinds of questions here. Gosh. Um, okay, there's a question here. From Jamie, did you see the Oppenheimer movie? If so, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I did go see the Oppenheimer movie. Um, I would say it wasn't quite my favorite. It was a, a sort of elaborately made movie, but in the end, it felt like it was a, a story of kind of slightly petty interactions between a, a set of people with a backdrop of the big story of the Manhattan Project. And I have to say that, that uh, uh, at least for me, might not be the typical moviegoer, I would have liked to see a little bit more about kind of what was remarkable about, for example, Oppenheimer's role in the Manhattan Project, which was really a story of a kind of remarkable leadership of a group of people who had all these different skills, all these different interests, and kind of how do you knit together the folks who know about nuclear physics with the folks who know about high explosives with the folks who know about chemistry and metallurgy and all these kinds of things. Um, and I think that was, I didn't think that was particularly portrayed at all in this movie. Um, and that in a sense was one of the kind of uh, remarkable things about, about the Manhattan Project. I mean, the Manhattan Project as just a purely a story of people sort of coming together to achieve a single thing was a fairly impressive project. I mean, you know, not, I mean, what, $5 billion, something like that in those those days was probably, uh, you know, 50 to 100 billion these days, maybe. Um, you know, I think there have been a series of other kinds of military projects of that size. I think the uh, air defense system that was built in the um, uh, 1950s to 60s was a similarly very expensive, complicated thing that like the Manhattan Project, which pioneered many technologies, uh, you know, the air defense system pioneered all sorts of computer telecommunications kind of technologies as well. Um, but I think it was perhaps was less concentrated and urgent than the Manhattan Project. And I think uh, the, the sort of the, the, the stories of um, individual people involved in that project uh, and sort of how they all came together to, to do this, this surprising and a very hard to do thing is interesting. I mean, I, I, of course, there were portrayals of a few people who I, uh, well, certainly people I know a lot about, and a few people who I actually personally knew in that movie, which were, I, I don't know, there was a, a bit of a portrayal of Richard Feynman sort of playing the bongo drums. And I remember him telling me about the, the um, you know, his, his sort of uh, uh, adventures around the time of the bomb test. And um, I have to say, I thought in the movie, he looked more like kind of a um, uh, some kind of primate, uh, you know, um, more more like the two thousand one kind of primate with uh, 
uh, with you know waving his arms in the, in the air. I, at least uh, the the Dick Feynman who I knew and his son Carl, who had certain great similarities to him, but was obviously much younger, um, were a little bit more kind of uh, um, not quite uh, could be energetic, but in a slightly more reserved way than that. Um, I suppose the other uh, kinds of characters. It was interesting to see the um, uh, Institute for Advanced Study, where I worked in the early 1980s, in the movie. I'm pretty sure I wasn't looking totally carefully in the shot, but I'm pretty sure that the section of the main building that got added when I was there, actually, for the sake of having what was supposed to be a kind of school of computer science that I was being recruited to, to lead, um, the, the piece of the building that got added for that, I think, was in the shot, which is kind of uh, ahistorical, but who's to know? Um, I think the, uh, and it looked like the Institute Pond that had been there when I was there looked like it was in rather, well, maybe it was historically correct, but it looked rather mangier than it had done when I was there. Maybe it is now, 40 years later, it's mangier, maybe uh, 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 40 years earlier it was um, uh, also correctly portrayed as being mangier. But in any case, a, a, a few thoughts there. I mean, I think that the um, uh, kind of, I, I know people are drawing some kind of analogies between kind of, you know, the nuclear weapons story and the AI story. Um, I think those analogies are a little bit far-fetched. I mean, I think that the um, uh, uh, the the kind of nuclear weapons are a, a thing which have a, a very complicated supply chain, different from AI, which is more of a sort of abstractly definable, anybody can do it in their garage kind of thing. I think the thing that is uh, a little bit perhaps similar is the the kind of the immediate desire to have kind of, in those days, the Atomic Energy Commission, in these days, some kind of AI commission that is sort of... Uh, uh, you know, trying to governmentally organize things. I think the Atomic Energy Commission makes a lot more sense probably than the things that I can immediately imagine that an AI commission would do. I kind of uh, uh, felt like um, people I know who are sort of, um, I think, angling to be part of the kind of AI commission type of thing. And it's almost, I felt like, uh, it's kind of like send them an email and point them to the Oppenheimer movie and say, you know, beware what happened to J. Robert Oppenheimer, so to speak. It's kind of a different world thinking about the technology of making, the, 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 the creation of technology, and its kind of intersection with uh, sort of government forces. And I think that that movie, in rather painful detail, in my opinion, sort of portrayed some of the, um, uh, the kind of um, the shenanigans and the sort of, I mean, uh, you know, not to say that things like academia aren't full of their own intense backstabbing and other kinds of things. But I think the dynamics and the levers by which that works are different in the political arena than they are in the academic arena. Perhaps uh, no more intense than in the academic arena, but just different kinds of things that happen. And you know, if you're used to the academic arena or the te technology arena, it's sort of a, a, a different world, um, which I don't know that much about. Um, let's see. Uh, Satoshi is asking, what are things one should prepare 
should do to prepare oneself to become a scientist regarding education path ideas, tools in the upcoming age of computation and AI? Well, you know, the one thing that is sort of an absolute constant of things that I've seen in kind of success in science and other things, but particularly science, is just use the best tools. Because the better the tools you have, the higher the platform you're starting from in the things you want to discover. And, you know, I've spent the last 40 years trying to build the best tools I can to do science, at least in my kinds of ways to think about doing science, and that those tools end up being our Wolfram language, computational language. And I would say that uh, uh, one would be well served to make sure one understands and knows well that computational language. It's certainly the platform I just built for the last 40 years for doing science. And for me, for example, it's allowed me to do all kinds of things that were quite completely, would have been completely out of reach without it. They would have been kind of 50 to 100 year timescale out of reach without that computational uh, language capability. So I would say that that's a, that's a really good thing to, to know, to know those tools, to fluently be able to write computational language, to, to be able to use it, to actually figure things out, to be able to take sort of the knowledge that's already encoded in our computational language and start from that rather than having to build those things for oneself from scratch. I would say that having a kind of a, uh, for myself, and there are different styles of doing science, for myself, it's kind of like do things where you can actually understand what you're doing, so to speak. Do things where you can build up every step, where you understand every step. And using our computational language is kind of the best way I know to do that. You express your thoughts in Wolfram language, and that's a way to make sure that you really have those thoughts clear, because you express them, and then the computer is going to try and implement them. And if it does it successfully, well, then you have some idea that you thought expressed your thoughts successfully. If it doesn't, then you know there's a problem. Now, I think in the modern time of, of uh, uh, LLMs and so on, there's sort of a, a bit of an on-ramp to being able to use Wolfram language. It seems to work quite well to just sort of take the things you're thinking about. If you can sort of construct a computational way to talk about them, say those things to the LLM, and with reasonable chance, it will write at least some version of Wolfram language code from the things that you've expressed to it. You can then look at that code and say, let me read that. It's kind of a formalism, a notation for representing these kinds of computational ideas. Is it what I meant? If yes, run it and go use that as kind of a brick in the tower that you're building. But you know, I think those are those are things that are kind of um, um, pieces of, uh, of of how you can get to the place where you're sort of fluent in computational language. I mean, I know for myself, when I think about things, I'm thinking directly in terms of sort of structuring those things in terms of computational language, kind of structures, of functions, all this kind of thing. And, and I can then start to sort of express myself by typing, you know, Wolfram language or whatever before I could even have explained what the actual thing that I'm going to type would be. I mean, that's kind of what it means to be fluent in a language. And it's it's really powerful to be able to do that with computational language, because it's not just something where you're saying it to another person. It's 
you're able to say it to a computer and your computer is able to then just do a lot of stuff based on that. So that's the first thing to say. I mean, I suppose the next point to make is learn to think computationally about things. And how do you do that? Well, practice helps, but also there are just a certain number of kind of sort of principles about how to think about that. They have not been terribly well codified. This is a project I'm hoping to do within the next year or so is, is kind of write a systematic kind of introduction to computational thinking that kind of talks about things you might need to understand, like, I don't know, the idea of unique IDs for things, the idea of recursion, the idea of kind of how you uh, turn uh, something like an image into something you can compute with, the kinds of things you can do with, let's say, sounds, the co concepts of graphs, hypergraphs, whatever, the, uh, the kinds of things you can do with those things, kind of trying to get some idea for when you are confronted with something in the world, roughly what kind of template do you want to use to kind of think about that thing computationally? You know, when people do this in the much more restricted case of, of mathematical thinking, a lot of it is turn it into numbers, you know, represent that thing as numbers and then sort of math kind of relates, maybe it's numbers, maybe it's geometry, uh, those types of things. But when you're, okay, this is a uh, an image or something, there's not a great way to think about that in terms of traditional math, but there certainly are many computational ways to think about that and understanding the kinds of things one could use to think about that, you know, uh, sort of breaking the image into components morphologically, you know, understanding color maps for images, these kinds of things. These are sort of the, the raw material of computational thinking. And I think that's uh, a really important and great thing in terms of understanding how to do science going forward. You can kind of concretize that thinking with Wolfram language. You know, this is what we've tried to cover is all these different kinds of areas of computational thinking. But I think there are still, it's kind of like there are concepts to learn, which you can see concretized in Wolfram language. I, I, I think there isn't yet a great kind of source that, that I can point to, to say, here's where to learn those, those constructs, concepts a little bit more in the abstract, so to speak. Although, although whenever you learn them, you're going to be concretizing them by actual computational language representing them. But you kind of have to have the idea of colors, and then you can see, you know, RGB color, XYZ color, all these kinds of things. But you sort of start with the idea of color and what is it and and you know the fact that we have these receptors on our retinas that sort of break colors into three components or all these kinds of things are sort of what you need to do if you want to understand the concept of color computationally so to speak so that that's another thing another thing in terms of kind of preparing for science you know there's there's just a lot of facts to know depending on what area of science you're interested in but the more you know about more areas of science, the better off you will be. There's just tremendous kind of uh, cross connections between these different areas of science, things where, oh, well, there's this mechanism that works that way in biology. Maybe you can import that mechanism in thinking about some kind of uh, computer systems architecture, something like that. Uh, it's, it's really science is a more integrative thing than people sometimes give it credit for. I mean, people think that science is sort of broken into all these different subdomains. But actually, there are principles on this whole computation idea helps to knit together all these different subdomains and kind of identify the kind of core principles that go across all these domains. And so that's, that's I think, 
being able to you know, knowing more about different areas of science is a good thing if you want to do science, even if you think you're going to do some very specialized area of science. It's also worth remembering that most of the great advances in science do not come from taking an existing tower and building a little bit taller on that tower. They mostly come from things where you have different towers from different fields of science and there's sort of a gap in the middle and you get to fill those things in. That's the time when there's kind of like with entrepreneurial companies and things, the time when things are just getting formed is the time of greatest growth. By the time the thing is a is an already constructed big tower, it's a different type of activity. It's more sort of incremental growth, and there's certainly plenty of people and useful things that get done incrementally. But it's a different thing from the times of sort of dramatic high growth. And of course, when you're dealing with dramatic high growth, it's also the time when there isn't much there. There isn't a well-defined path that you can go on. You kind of have to invent things for yourself. And I would say that the other thing about sort of preparing for doing science is, uh, I think I've said this a bunch of times before, you know, the thing that is always the greatest challenge and the thing which leads to the greatest successes is knowing not so much how to answer questions, but knowing what questions are worth asking. And that's something which doesn't tend to be taught in kind of the learn to do science school type thing. It tends to be something that uh, is uh, that that tends to be mostly about given this stuff that's already there, here's how to operate in that world, here's how to run the mechanics of that world. And I think the, the thing that is worth sort of pushing oneself on is, oh, there are these things one's wondering about, what's a question one might ask about that? And by the way, can you go in and use computation and computational language to perhaps make further progress with that question? because nobody ever was able to use those methods because they didn't exist before, but now they do exist. And perhaps even though that question has been out there for decades, you might be able to make progress with it. But take the things that you wonder about, which might be questions that have been out there for decades, might be questions nobody ever asked before because they never thought about things in that particular way, or they were never sort of picking away at that particular corner. Those are things that are worth doing in my view, and it's kind of that's the that's the place where you eventually get the highest value in kind of learning to be kind of a a if you want to be a sort of a do great science that's kind of what you have to do. You can do good science by doing things which are more operating within well defined existing domains. But if you want to do kind of great science, you really have to sort of concentrate on the strategy and on things like knowing what questions to ask. Let's see. Okay. Fab is asking, can the Kelly criterion, which I don't know what it is, apparently calculating the size of bets to place in markets also be a good tool to manage life, which is to say you limit the size of your experiments by design? I don't know. I don't think so. Not the way I do things. I mean, I don't know. You know, I tend to I very naively, you know, when I when I do rare investments in the market, usually usually that's only, oh, there's a company and I've been using its products and I think it's good. And, uh, you know, I know I have that extra information because I've actually been using its products and picking that company. I'll, I'll often invest a little bit in it. And sometimes it's really successful, like Apple or something is... is uh, and my usual strategy is when I think it's as, you know, we've really been successful, sell half. And I've done that many times now with my Apple stock. 
Um, but that's that's my only kind of naive uh, level of um, of sort of uh, criteria about about making bets like that. I found it's a it's psychologically good because you know you sell half of something, and if you sold it, uh, you know if the thing was at its absolute peak and then goes down, it's like well great, I at least you know I, I made made something from selling half. And if it's like keeps on going up to the moon, it's like well I've still got half left. It seems to at least for me it works psychologically quite well, and and perhaps it's even somewhat optimal from a kind of uh, um, a kind of returns point of view, but. You know, this question of, of how big a bet should you place in projects that you do, I have to say, whenever I do a project, I just say, I want to do this project and I want to do it well. And whatever it takes is what I'm going to put into it. And, you know, whenever I kind of say to myself, oh, this is going to be a two week project. And, you know, that's what it, that's my constraints. I find that very hard to deal with because the thing that I like to do with projects and try to do with projects is to always do the project well. And sometimes, you know, if I knew, oh, doing this project well is going to take me 10 years, that happened to me once with my big book, A New Kind of Science, um, I, you know, I might be very, very afraid of doing, even getting into doing the project. But so my mindset tends to be, I'm just going to jump in, do the project well. I would say that uh, I tend to adopt the following point of view. So, you know, I'll think about a project and I'll sort of think about it a bit. I'll say, I, I wonder how I could do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll say, I'm not ready to do this project yet. So I'll start collecting material about the project. Whenever I run into people who have things to say that are relevant to the project, I'll have a conversation, I'll learn a bunch of stuff. And that process might go on for one year, that's on the very low end, 25 years, that's on the higher end, but sometime between then, you know, maybe five years, maybe, maybe 10 years, just sort of gradually accumulating knowledge and trying to sort of get my mind into the mode where I could really do that project. And, and then sometimes what I'll do is start, you know, kicking the tires of the project. I won't put a lot into it. Often I'll delegate that, ask other people, you know, try this, try that just accumulate material about that project. In fact, just this afternoon, I was looking at a project that I started uh, in 2018, um, maybe started in 2017, I'm not sure, um, where you know it got a certain distance and it wasn't really ready for me to kind of uh, really engage and really try and fully do this project. It was something where I'd done little pieces, other people had helped me with things. I think I'm now getting ready to engage and really do this project. And so I've sort of collected a lot of material. And by the way, in the years since 2018, kind of since I knew I was interested in this project, every time something that was sort of relevant to this came along, it's like throw it in the folder, throw it in the folder. And now, well, now it's a big mess of stuff in the folder, but now it's a question of pulling it out and, and, and working on it. So, you know, this idea of kind of you, you poke at things for a while, and then you kind of realize, well, it's ready now. And it could be ready because you're ready and you feel like you've sort of understood what the big point is. It could be ready because there are ambient technologies or material information and so on that exists in the world that make it so that that is a project that can now be done reasonably easily. Or uh, it, it could be that it sort of has synergy with other projects you're doing. And it's like, gosh, I should now do this project. That happened to me, for example, recently with a project on the second law of thermodynamics, 
which is something that I started thinking about 50 years ago when I was 12 years old, um, 51 years ago, whatever. The, the, um, that's a project that had sort of been gestating for a long time. I made a bunch of progress on it in the 1980s and the 1990s. I finally thought I've, you know, I pretty much, I've understood this stuff by the 2010s. I definitely felt I was on top of the situation, but I hadn't really explicitly written down what I understood. And I hadn't really gone back and traced through the history of the field to make sure that what I was talking about really made perfect sense based on the history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I finally did that um, starting last summer and just finished, just published a book about it just, just now. Um, and uh, that was a project which had, uh, and why did I do that now? Part of the reason I did that now was because I kept on realizing, oh, we're doing a project about fundamental physics and so on. I keep on needing to refer to the intuition and the results that came from my study of the second law of thermodynamics. That was kind of a thing where, let me just get that as a solid thing that I can just point to and that I can make sure is solid because it's it, it has synergy with other things that I'm doing. So those are sort of typical reasons where a project finally gets taken out of uh, kind of gestation and hatches, so to speak, and uh, really, really gets done. But I would say that um, uh, in my own sort of my own way of doing things, I'm not a big one for sort of doing things halfway. I'm, I'm not a big one for saying, I, you know, I tend to take the point of view that it's much better to just do the best one can on a project, just do it once, spend the extra time, because you'll never want to come back to it again. And that way you say, I've got the solid thing, I understand it, I can refer to it myself later, it's a thing that's out there in the world, it's, it's the solid thing that I can build on, rather than, oh, I did part of it, and then a few years later I come back and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not back to doing this again, let me sort of redo and re-remember where I was. You know, I had one example in my life where I did get to do that. I built a system called SMP back in 1979 to about 1981 or 82, which was kind of a forerunner of the modern Mathematica and Waltham language. And, you know, had I at the time when I was building that thought, oh, I'm going to sort of throw this one away and build another one, I probably wouldn't have been motivated to build it. But the kind of dynamics of what happened caused it to be something where I really said I need to make a fresh start and do, you know, a sort of round two of this, and that worked out really well. I suppose I did the same thing a little bit. I worked on the science of cellular automata in the 1980s and other kinds of simple programs and sort of understanding how that works in the computational universe. And I wrote a bunch of papers, which I think are for their, for what they are, they are sort of definitive things to say about those topics. And they kind of are sort of definite units of, of, uh, of work and you could say achievement, so to speak. And then I came back sort of in the, in the 1990s and decided to build this much bigger structure sort of on top of that. It wasn't like I knocked those buildings down. It was more like I built this giant sort of overbuilding, so to speak, in which those buildings were just small parts. But those buildings were still, in a sense, sensible on their own. And for me, uh, you know, the particular way that I choose to do projects, I, I've just found it works much better to sort of go go all the way in doing a project and say, okay, that one's done. Now I can sort of put it aside, build on it, uh, rather than let me do kind of a half version of this project and see how that works and then go on and do another version of that. Now, having said that, I will say that in terms of the sort of the flow of one's life, 
there are definitely things one ends up doing where one says, well, I did that and, and I really liked that, or I did that and I hated doing that. And, uh, you know, for me, oh, I don't know, there are things I've done in, in sort of very, uh, for example, very consumer uh, kind of um, media kinds of things, which just aren't a good fit for me, because I'm not, as you can kind of tell from these live streams, I'm not a talking sound bites kind of guy. And uh, it's just not a very good fit to have, you know, oh, there's a two minute segment on this, you know, morning TV show or something. That's not a good fit for me. And, you know, you kind of learn those things or you learn. Oh, you know, I do a little bit of historical research on something and you learn, I really like doing this historical research. I'm going to do more of that. Or you learn, you know, oh, I'm going to be an advisor to a company in this or that way. Oh, that's kind of interesting that, you know, that that that's a, a thing where. I feel like I'm providing a lot of value to them and it's kind of fun to do. And so you do more of that or, or another thing where you, you know, just different things where you notice that there are things you like to do and things you don't like to do. And certainly for me, I've sort of collected through the course of my life, different kinds of things where I say, I like this, I don't like that. And then that's kind of the thing that uses the pattern going forward. So in that sense, sort of making the small bets on, let me try doing this. I mean, like right now, I'm sort of having this uh, uh, fight with myself about whether I should travel a bunch uh, going forward. And uh, I'm, I'm going to try some more experiments and sort of decide what parameters of, of sort of uh, uh, how exotic the destination is versus kind of what I get out of different kinds of things and what things uh, kind of represent too much wear and tear and so on, and try and sort of figure out experimentally, so to speak, uh, whether I want to do that or not. So I suppose in those kinds of things, I do that. But in terms of projects that I do, I, I don't tend to take that point of view, except in sort of the aggregate of types of projects I know are a good fit for me and types that aren't. Aaron asks, are you using any LLM functions for managing your daily workflow? If so, which ones? Uh, well, one thing I'm definitely doing is uh, using LLMs to summarize things that I might read. And I think I'm going to do more of that. Uh, certainly, for example, the daily digests that uh, people at our company make of kind of new things going on with LLMs. I really got fed up with trying to read the abstracts. Uh, for papers and so on that were all written differently and often very ponderous and they don't get to the point until sentence six or something. And it's like, just get an LLM to summarize these things. And that works really well. And the, the fact that the LLM text is kind of dull is irrelevant. It's actually a, a feature rather than a bug. So that's been an example. Uh, one, I was just looking at this in actually a, a meeting, which was live streamed just, just a little while ago here. That's really one I didn't see coming is... When the LLM writes Wolfram language code, it makes up function names of functions that it thinks should exist, but they don't exist in some cases. In most cases, they do exist. And I kind of feel like patting myself on the back, like that was the right name for the function. Even the LLM thought so, so to speak, even from its sort of extrapolation from what's out there on the web, that was the obvious name. Sometimes obvious takes uh, you know, hours and hours of thought to come up with, but the obvious turned out to be the right obvious, but it's made up a bunch of functions which uh, uh, it thinks are there and they're not. And some of those are pretty good ideas and we're gonna implement them. And you know, thanks LLM for kind of uh, sort of uh, st getting the statistics of, of what people talk about out there 
it kind of saves us time to, to be able to do that. Uh, other LLM things, let's see, I've been doing, um, um, I'm using chat notebooks a bit. I think I'm using them increasingly as, as they get a little bit more polished. Uh, I haven't yet been using them really to write code myself. I may or may not start doing that. We'll have to see. It's, it's kind of right on the edge of whether that's worthwhile. Um, I guess I've been using them a little bit as an alternative to kind of documentation search for things where I kind of roughly understand the concept, but I can't remember what we called it. Um, and uh, uh, or cases or things like, yeah, in fact, yes, I just used it actually for something where there's sort of a, a somewhat obscure option setting, which I, I know has to work in some way. And I kind of can't be bothered to think through uh, kind of what the, uh, what the kind of clean way of thinking about that is. And you just sort of babbled at the LLM and it indeed gave me the sort of thing that in effect was what the documentation would have said. And, and by the way, it helps now that within our chat notebooks, we have an increasing number of LLM uh, of tools that the LLM can use. Like it can evaluate Wolfram language code. It can read and search Wolfram language documentation. It can figure out whether this is the correct option for some function, all this kind of thing. So that's really helping. And, and one's starting to see it kind of having a discussion with itself before it kind of tells anything to, to us, the users. Uh, those, are, those are some places I've personally been starting to use LLMs. And I think this thing about summarizing is probably going to be something that I will do increasingly. Um, I think it's a, it's a useful thing. And uh, maybe I will do some prioritization if I need to do that. I mean, I always hope that I will process all my email and so on, but I get like 600 messages a day. And uh, right now it's horribly backed up. So anybody who happens to be watching this, who's sent me mail recently and hasn't gotten a response, well, that's the reason. Maybe I should be doing that rather than doing this live stream, but this live stream is fun. So I, I, I'm gonna do this instead of, uh, instead of grinding through thousands and thousands of emails, even though I know I eventually will have to do that. They don't go away on their own, but maybe an LLM can help me prioritize ones and notice ones that have some time urgency or whatever. Let's see. The uh, question here from Esther R. What's the next big thing in business? How will virtual spaces like Apple's new headset announcement gain popularity, gaining popularity, impact the workplace, if at all? So if you're asking about sort of how and where, how people get their work done, you know, there are these kind of strange rolling trends. You know, you go look at the time, the Industrial Revolution. People were starting to sort of assemble things in production lines, all this kind of, well, not really production lines at first, but just sort of uh, in factory-like settings. And you look at what those factories looked like, very high ceilings, big tables, people sitting at these big tables, and you say, well, that was the past. That was the late 1800s or whatever, you know. And then you go to a, a, a Silicon Valley company or something circa 2010s, and what do you see? The exact same thing. It's kind of these big tables and everybody's sitting at the tables and, you know, a big loft space or something. And uh, they've got their workstation, which now has a little computer at it, as opposed to something where they were, you know, assembling or sewing something or whatever else. Um, the uh, it's kind of remarkable how these things kind of uh, come around and come away and so on. I mean, I know in our own company, 
which we've been around for 36 years now, there's been kind of this, this strange progression of first, everybody wants an office. They want an office. It has to have walls all the way. Then it was like, oh no, uh, let's have sort of uh, uh, cubicles with, with partitions and so on. Oh, let's have more open space. And now we're back a little bit, so let's have offices. Well, actually, we're back to, we've got gobs of empty space because people aren't working in the office. People are working from home. Now, our company for many, many years has been very geo-distributed, very kind of work from home-ish. I suppose I set a, an example, uh, what is it, um, 1990, uh, 1991, when I kind of became a remote CEO, um, you know, uh, 32 years ago, um, and uh, uh, that 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 kind of led to us having a company culture where things can be done remotely, and uh, where I would say that in terms of the dynamics of how things work, you know, I'm a very email-oriented person. Um, we certainly have a sort of chat system at the company, and many other people use that. I don't particularly like that because I tend to be either concentrating on the thing I'm doing in some meeting or, or working on some particular thing. I don't want the kind of chat-like distraction. And I also like the fact that email is so archivable and has so much sort of metadata and has the kind of threads that can be built up that way. And I don't really want to have, if I want to have a conversation with someone, I want to be kind of all in the conversation, so to speak, and just sort of pick up the Zoom or whatever and uh, uh, and do that interaction rather than sort of be, oh, I'm I'm talking to this person and then uh, I'm doing something else for five minutes and I'm going to talk to that person again. For me personally, that doesn't work very well with my way of kind of getting into things. I tend to be a person who who likes to, and I, I kind of think it's a good thing for many people, like you're concentrating on one thing and you're really concentrating on that. And then you switch and you're concentrating on another thing. And you can put your full attention on that thing rather than trying to sort of multitask and and time slice between a bunch of different things, which I tend to think doesn't let you ever really engage and think very deeply about any of those things. So in terms of, of kind of, uh, uh, you know, what the typical workspace might look like, I mean, I know that, you know, I've just had kind of bigger and bigger and somewhat more and more monitors in front of me, and it's been kind of the same story, oh, since, uh, since probably 1979. I mean, the monitor was very small in those days. It was just a CRT. Um, but, you know, I had, I just found a picture actually of a, a CRT that I had um, at, uh, at home back in 1979. And uh, the only hack of those days was one was using phone lines to communicate with uh, sort of computers and it was using acoustic couplers where you just take a phone like those, you know, those things you actually pick up the phone and it's got this, you know, handset and uh, you'd stick that in this kind of acoustic coupled modem that had these rubber cups that held the, the handset. And the hack was, you know, I was very surprised about this when I came to the US from, from England that, you know, local phone calls were free in the US. And so I would just leave my, um, uh, my, my modem just connected to a phone for months at a time. And I have to give credit to the phone system that it didn't hiccup at all. And I would, you know, I would leave, I would come back and the thing would still be connected. And I would have this terminal that I was using to, to do my work. And 
you know, gradually that became a workstation computer that was a separate independent computer. And of course, now we're back a little bit to the cloud, so to speak. So it's, it is more or less a local computer, but not completely. Um, and, you know, I suppose that aspect of it hasn't changed that much. I mean, I suppose that one has, uh, you know, I've had this sort of desk thing that I can like press a button and it makes the monitors go up and I can stand up to do stuff rather than sitting down. And that's kind of nice every so often, but that's a very minor change. Now, uh, it's also the case, I suppose, that, you know, I, I like to uh, make sure that I walk a certain amount. I usually walk, well, every day, more than 10,000 steps. I try and, I've tried to make that a principle. At least the last five years, I managed to do that essentially, I think every day. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I used to, have more elaborate kind of tablet computer, or even actual whole computer things that I would walk with. But I, I kind of have stopped doing that because most of the time I just arrange that the things I'm going to do are meetings where, yes, I might have to look at something, but I can see it on a phone. And uh, mostly I'm just sort of talking to people. And I, I have to say that that sort of form factor of the phone with its high resolution display is enough for many kinds of things. Can't type very well, but I can at least look at things. Now, when it comes to things like these, uh, you know, new AR, VR kind of headset type things, I kind of think if the displays are good enough, that will be a cool thing because it's kind of like, okay, I can have more displays. Now, I don't know whether it's realistic that I'm going to wear something on my head all day. I mean, I suppose I wear glasses, so I'm wearing something on my head all day right now. But but this, uh, the, the current generation of AR, VR systems, I suspect are going to be too heavy to want to wear on one's head sort of for a, for a large amount of time. I mean, I suppose it's funny because, you know, what's what's old is new again, so to speak. You know, there was a time when people would wear giant top hats, which were surely quite heavy, and they would even put things in their hat. Like, you know, I think it was quite routine for people to roll up papers and stick them in their top hat. And that was kind of the, uh, you know, forget a briefcase, you can just... Uh, um, you know, have it in your hat and, uh, you know, pull it out of your hat type thing um, when when you needed to. So maybe what's old is going to be new again and everybody will be wearing not top hats, but AR, VR systems. But in any case, I think it will be a very convenient thing to be able to have, uh, you know, if the displays are good enough to be able to sort of just have all these virtual displays. And no doubt that will lead to some different dynamics of how things work. I mean, one could say, you know, what has happened as a result of mobile and the ability and, and touch, for example, touch interfaces instead of mice and so on uh, and trackpads. Um, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, some things have changed, but I don't think uh, many things are very much sort of the same uh, in those different form factors of display. And I'm sure it will be the same with kind of the AR, VR world. Uh, perhaps in the AR situation where one's able to kind of annotate the visual scene that one has, there may be different things that become possible of like, oh, you know, I remember I left that thing in this room. Let me let me put the virtual post-it note there and I'll walk back to the room. I, maybe not. That that sounds kind of crazy to me. That's like this, this thing that happened for a few years where people really wanted to do kind of skeuomorphic design where you would have a desktop that looks like the top of a desk with, you know, this, you know, leather top to a wooden desk or something, and all these kinds of details like that. You know, I have to say, uh, I think I've, I've said this before, when I first saw Windows, the, you know, the idea of a, a window system and so on, which must have been 1979, 1980 or something, 
really seeing the first version of that at Xerox Park when I visited there a couple of times. Uh, you know, I always thought this isn't going to work. You know, it's always a mess to have papers on your desk and one paper gets obscured by others and you can't see what's there. It's like, really, do we want to repeat that mess on our computer and so on and have these things where you have overlapping windows and you can't get to the one behind because there's one in front and so on. But it turns out, well, actually, that works quite well. People, people, you know, we're essentially building something that fits in with our model of the world. And it's kind of something where when we think about user interfaces for things, they've kind of got to map into things we already know how to do. For example, at one level, computer languages, computational language, and so on, that's leveraging the fact that we already know human language. It's leveraging the fact, leveraging the fact that we have words we know from human languages that we can use as sort of computational definitions and so on. And there are all sorts of different ways in which we're kind of leveraging things we know. And so the question is, can you know what can you kind of still make use of of things we know? And like one of them is you turn your head and there's something different there. And that's something we're then making use of in a kind of AR VR environment. You know, there are things where you might think humans could deal with it, but they probably can't very well, like graphs where you have all these complicated connections. And you say, I've been thinking since the early 90s that I should be able to use VR to represent kind of some complicated graph that happens to be relevant for our models for physics, and then sort of just use my fingers to kind of manipulate that graph. That's probably another thing that will come probably with this generation of VRAR is uh, being able to do things that's something we haven't really had, being able to sort of do things with our fingers in space. You know, if we want to mold a 3D shape, just being able to use our hands to do it like we mold a piece of clay. That's something that we are evolved to do, so to speak, but we haven't really been able to do in a user interface. And that's probably a thing that will come. And you know, it has been rather difficult to construct sort of 3D objects. It's pretty difficult to do that with you know, mice and you know, moving things around and so on. That may become vastly easier. Uh, the consequence of that, I'm not sure. For, for things that uh, somebody like me does, you know, that, that maybe I don't immediately see the consequence. In terms of kind of what things like, uh, you know, the, the different kind of uh, flow of things in, in workspaces, you know, I think one of the things when you see people in the modern industrial revolution type setup, one of the features of people is they have these big headphones on, they, their whole audio environment is very uh, sort of internal to them, and they have a display and they're mostly looking at the display. And, you know, I think people concentrate anyway. I'm sure those people in the 1800s in kind of the, the early factories, so to speak, were similarly concentrating on the particular thing they were doing and kind of blocking out sort of the people to the side, so to speak. But, you know, in terms of, of what will happen to things like, you know, will people go into offices anymore? You know, I think that that's going to swing back and forth a few times, I think. You know, I could see... Uh, you know, post-pandemic, sort of certain conferences have come back, some different ones, some died in the, in the kind of extinction, the conference extinction, like the, uh, you know, the Jurassic, uh, you know, the Cretaceous tertiary, you know, extinction of the dinosaurs. So similarly, the, uh, the pandemic asteroid, so to speak, uh, made certain kinds of conferences go extinct, but other ones are, are sort of emerging in their place. And I think you know, this this let's get together with actual people. Uh, I think people maybe have even a better understanding of 
what the significance of that is or isn't uh, post-pandemic. But I think um, uh, the the um, in terms of of uh, you know I have to say I think there's a tremendous tendency for intrinsic sort of aspects of the human condition to kind of shine through in things that are going on. Like, you know, you say social media, what really is it? People are sort of connecting to their friends. Well, you know, they might've done that in the village square back in the day, and now they can do it virtually across the, across the world, but it's sort of the same idea. And I think often what happens is the things you see end up being things that are really part of the, the eternal human condition, but they get interpreted in some new way through some new technology and so on. And so the kind of to understand what happens, you know, I think the concept of the workplace is, you know, not super old. You know, people would have the, you know, the blacksmith who would live on top of their shop type thing is, you know, that was a common thing, as opposed to the I commute to work in a car or a train type thing. Um, and now we're sort of much more back to I'm going to just work at home, but it's a little different because you know the customers aren't coming to your front door typically. They're you know they are virtually coming to you, and so that's sort of a, a refactoring of the thing where you're kind of you're working, you're living somewhere, and so on. And I'm not sure that the uh, you know to be able to know to what extent people people want to gather, people want to be separate. You know these are sort of eternal features of the human condition. And the exact factoring of those, and the exact sort of deployment of those in the in in, in work environments is is not so clear to me. Um, but I think it's going to be sort of more of the same, just interpreted differently. Let's see. Jake says, "I'm a software engineer with about eight years of professional experience, interested in transitioning into the field of AI and machine learning. I found it says quite difficult to find careers in the marketplace." That don't require five plus years of experience. Any advice about how to best make this transition? Well, you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, there'll be fields which are really new, and there'll be job ads that say needs five plus years of experience in this area. Or there are things where it says you need a, you know, a union card or something to be a member of this, but to be a member of the union, you have to have been already doing it for X number of years. And it's like, this is a, you know, how does this work? How do you get to that point? I think the thing to, uh, you know, if you're sort of a software engineer and you're looking at kind of AI machine learning, I think the thing to do is to think about the corners of AI machine learning, which are just software engineering. You know, I think that there is a part of sort of machine learning that is frankly not done by that many people that is kind of mathy, physics-y type stuff. And uh, you know that's a different end from the software engineering end. At the software engineering end, are all the things about you know wrangling all those machines that are doing training, or you know being able to distribute queries in a in a uh, in an LLM, or being able to you know manage uh, training data. Those kinds of things. There are a lot of very software engineering type tasks in the in that are just right adjacent to the kind of uh, to what you might think of as the coolest AI stuff. And I think also that a lot of the value of what's coming out of LLMs, it's going to be software engineering. It's going to be building those things, given that LLM is the, you know, is the new kind of uh, uh, energy source or something. Now you actually have to build the, the, 
the sort of the town around that and that building of that town, it's, it's going to be software engineering. I mean, if you're saying, let's build a prompt repository, okay, you have to think through what is a prompt repository and you have to understand something about kind of the world of LLMs and things like this. But the actual building of the prompt repository informed by what you know about LLMs, that's really traditional software engineering. So I would say that for somebody who has a significant experience in software engineering, it's kind of just find things where your experience in software engineering relates to things which you think of are being, as being interesting to do. And I, I think that the things that are kind of, uh, uh, there's, you know, the real stuff that gets done in a lot of what people call AI is just software engineering, but it is software engineering informed by thinking about things in terms of AI. So, you know, a lot of software engineering might be, oh, we've got this database, let's do queries against this database, let's, uh, do you know this thing that's flowing data in this or that way? Maybe the queries against the database are kind of rather mundane in how they work. But if you think about them in terms of LLMs, there's a bunch of much more interesting kind of core things that you can do with that data. But then the things you're going to build on top of that, those are software engineering. And the things, you know, the user experience you design, well, you know, user experience there's different issues, there's different thoughts about how to do user experience in a world of linguistic user interfaces and so on. But in the end, if you're good at doing user experience, that's an easy adaptation to make. So that would be my advice. Rather than trying to kind of say, I've done all these classes and I'm now fully AI themed, and then you're gonna find that there's a job that's advertised and it says it's an AI job, but in the end, it's just software engineering. And I think you know, understanding in more detail sort of what is really really needs to be done. And plus there's a lot of things where there's no class about it yet. You know, AI psychology. I don't know whether there are any classes. There shouldn't yet be any classes because people don't know much about that yet. That's something where people will get more experience doing prompt engineering, for example, which, which I claim is mostly a story of expository writing, not a story of learning kind of, uh, you know, what a random forest is or something like this. It's... Uh, it's something that is is a, is a new kind of skill. And I think those are the kinds of things people should kind of concentrate on rather than worrying, did you get, you know, it's kind of like, like people say, well, if you want to be a, I don't know, some, some profession, you kind of have to learn calculus. It's like, really? When are you ever going to use calculus in that profession? Now, you know, I have to say that that uh, lots of people use tools we built to learn calculus. So I'm happy there's lots of calculus learning that happens in the world, and I'm happy to be able to support it. But the truth is that there are a lot of things where, you know, you're really never going to use it. It is a, a useful way of training your mind in certain, you know, directions, but it isn't directly what you need to do. And, and so it, the same is true with AI and machine learning. Learning, you know, what a self-organizing map is, probably not that important, learning how a, an LSTM works. People aren't using LSTMs anymore. It was a mechanism in neural nets that was probably overly complicated and it didn't, uh, you know, it got replaced. And you don't really need to know how that works. Knowing, you know, how to uh, set up a pooling layer and what, um, you know, and how to do all these kinds of things, that's a very specialized kind of thing. It's like learning microprocessor design. There's a small set of people that have to do it and do it well, but that's not what the typical job advertised in, you know, 
and do software, do, do things with computers, that does not require that you understand uh, kind of Boolean algebra for circuit design. It's, it's at a different level. And, and so you need to understand different kinds of things. Uh, let's see, Nachos is asking, what do you say to people who are scared to lose their jobs to AI? There are a lot of young professionals in the tech sector just getting started, becoming data analysts, project managers, engineers, starting to hear lots of bustle about these careers not being good investments in the long term. Yeah, well, mundane programming has been a thing that has been sort of a bubble. I don't know, you know, mundane programming of write your low-level code, sort of pandering to the computer using languages that are kind of just sort of slight kind of uh, updates to the languages that have just existed for 50 years. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, a lot of people have been doing that and that really isn't something that needs to be done. I mean, you know, my own efforts in building our computational language, the big story has been automating much of that low level programming. So, you know, what might be, you know, 300 lines of, I don't know, Java code, Python code, something like this ends up being because of the things that we built over the last uh, few decades, ends up being, you know, two lines of orphan language code. And yes, you can write the two lines of orphan language code, and it's a lot easier than writing that big blob of, of other code and putting together all these weird libraries and things like this. And that's the thing that that's what I've been trying to achieve over all these years, is to really be able to sort of build the best sort of acceleration of human thinking with, with computation and to build kind of the, the, the sort of best encapsulation of things we already know. And I think that, you know, to me, it's kind of ironic that people are like, oh my gosh, pieces of programming are gonna be automated. It's like, come on guys, we've been doing that for three decades. And, you know, a lot of people and particularly in the R&D sector make lots of use of that, have done many magic things with it but there's still an awful lot of people who are doing what one might call grunt programming, just sort of putting together these lines of code in this way and that way. And yeah, you know, that, that has been automated. It needed to be automated. There's now a great big flashing sign that says it's being automated. And that wasn't a good bet. I mean, it's, it's the, the people using, I was talking earlier about using tools. It's kind of like that's using very, kind of, that's not using the best tools, that's using tools that make your life much harder. And, and now the AIs are showing, well, you really didn't need to do that. Um, you know, when it comes to things like data science and so on, once again, uh, you know, the things that we can provide with computational language, those are not going away as human activities because the ultimate thing the humans still need to do is to decide, well, what is it that's interesting? What's worth looking at? What's uh, uh, that's something where maybe the LLMs can give some little suggestions, but really that's ultimately a pretty human story and it necessarily so because it's kind of like the AIs can investigate an infinite number of things, but we humans have to decide what we want to investigate. And so there, you know, the real story there is can you get to the point where you can do computational thinking well, where you can take kind of human ideas, think about them computationally and then implement them. And that implementation, you know, if you use our computational language, should be a very straightforward step. If you choose to write all your code in C++, it's going to be very hard. And you're going to spend weeks and weeks doing that. And that's going to be most of what you spend your time doing. But that hasn't been necessary for decades. 
And uh, the fact that people still do it is just one of those anomalies of history that uh, uh, no doubt will eventually be seen as a, gosh, why did people do that to take all that trouble? It, they could just have done this thing automatically, so to speak. Let's see. Uh, okay, Satoshi asks, funny lifestyle question. What's your opinion on living off the grid, like living in a quiet rural area or modern times? I mean, at some level, uh, you know, with some version of the definition of that, somebody like me does live off the grid. You know, I work at home every day. I, um, you know, I do go and sort of interact with, I, I'm interacting with the world a lot, but I'm not kind of in the bustle of, uh, of, of kind of um, uh, being, you know, even in a city or, or kind of, um, you know, going into an office or anything like that. And now, you know, I, okay, there's, uh, you know, by the time you're sort of multi-gigabit connected to the outside world and uh, you're, you know, dealing with lots of messages from people, at that level, you're not off the grid. But for me, one of the things that's important is, you know, when I, um, uh, at any given time, I can just be on my own, perfectly quiet, all by myself. I can just do what I want to do. Think, write code, you know, write things, all those kinds of things. It's kind of just, it's not, I'm not, I don't have external stimuli acting on me. And I suppose that's one sense of being off the grid. Now, in terms of the sort of disconnect yourself, and uh, it's not something, somebody like me, I'm, I'm not motivated to do that. It's not something that I would, could responsibly do, because it turns out, you know, when you run companies and things, turns out that you never get to take a true vacation, so to speak. I, I've, I've had this terrible experience that on any given day, well, it's been true for 40 years or more, on any given day where I finally decide, okay, today I'm going to try pulling the plug and really not being available. Something happens where I kind of have to be available and doesn't happen most of the rest of the time. So it's kind of one of these jinxed type situations. And so I just gave up years ago saying, oh, I'm going to just be pulling the plug off the grid type thing. It's just like, I'm going to be available if, you know, if something comes up, I'm available type thing. And uh, uh, that for me, I mean, I, I can, I think that the fact that I get so much time where I'm kind of able to be just sort of quietly sort of on my own is, um, uh, I, I, I kind of need that. Um, I think this idea, so it is true that when it comes to doing projects, this thing about you're in the flow, you're doing it, you're doing it, you're doing it. And then for some reason, you're like, well, I'm not really doing it. Like, you know, the number of times when I'm kind of like, I've been thinking about something, I've been thinking about something, and then I'm about to go to sleep. And I'm like, you know, brushing my teeth, whatever, whatever it is. And I realize, well, now I'm thinking in a slightly freer way about this thing. And then I have some idea and I write it down and whatever else. Um, I, I mean, I have to admit that that does happen to me more than I might expect. And it might suggest that even sort of micro off the grid experiences might be a good thing. Although I personally find it really difficult to think without kind of external uh, kind of connections, so to speak, without being able to write something, without being able to sort of talk to my computer, talk to other people, whatever else. So 
Uh, I mean, this idea of, uh, okay, if you're on the desert island, or I think you mentioned um, uh, Isaac Newton here, who spent uh, 1665, 1666, I think, uh, sort of off the grid because there was a plague in Cambridge and he wanted to kind of go to the countryside to not die of plague. Um, and uh, uh, that time was uh, quite fertile for him. But, you know, I think quite a, quite a lot of the reason why that happens to people is because you have daily responsibilities. And if you're always doing your daily responsibilities, you never get a chance to kind of think about anything bigger. For somebody like me, I've, I've kind of set up my life so that I really can, uh, you know, perhaps it's a matter of, of just strength of will that you just decide you're going to do new things. You're going to think about new stuff, even though you could just drown in the kind of uh, morass of, of existing things that you have to do. I mean, I could spend all my time just sort of uh, tending things that I've already built. Uh, I choose not to do that. It does take some force of will to not do that um, because it's very comfortable and simple to just do that and, and rest on things you've already done. But I'm always sufficiently interested in new things that I go ahead and, and try to do them. Uh, Let's see. Sparepots asks an interesting question. Given the computational limitations of the human brain, are there drawbacks in thinking computationally? Do we risk losing track of high-level patterns with too many parts to count? I think the answer is no. I think what computational thinking does is to provide a formalism, a framework for kind of crystallizing your thoughts. And in a sense, that's a way of abstracting things. That's a way of taking some sort of incoherent collection of things and saying, I'm going to think about them all in this systematic computational way. And that allows me to kind of build up one step at a time, so to speak. So I kind of think of, of computational thinking while the details of it, oh, I'm looking at something with 10 million elements or something, the details of it are vastly complicated. The, the whole point of it is to be able to provide a structure that abstracts and lets you kind of keep, you know, you can keep a certain number of chunks of stuff in your, in your mind. And if those chunks are complicated, abstracted things, the, the, um, uh, there's sort of more inside them than if they're lower level kinds of things or things that weren't structured as computational thinking provides. So I, I view computational thinking as just a way of organizing oneself so that it isn't just all these incoherent pieces, but it's rather this kind of formal structure that one can then build on. Now, you know, I have to say, there's sort of a question of, of uh, uh, when you do that and you're looking at these different areas, I mean, what's absolutely great about computational thinking is that it lets you have the same kind of structure. You know, this idea of recursion, you apply it in this place in plant growth, in this place in kind of transportation networks, in this place in kind of mathematical algorithms and so on. But it's all the same idea. It's a huge unifier of things. And it lets you kind of, it lets you provides a transport layer for converting your thoughts in one area to thoughts in another area. So I, I kind of think it's, it's sort of exactly the opposite, that it allows you to have these kinds of coherence to thoughts. Now, Having said that, when you actually look at computational systems and you say, let me take these simple computational rules and run them, this whole phenomenon of computational irreducibility means you'll often get incredibly complicated things. But that is the nature of the things. 
there's no way to just sort of say, well, I'm not going to get that. That's what those rules do. And having intuition about what then happens is important and is sort of a key element of computational thinking. But it's not something where you can't sort of blame the computational irreducibility and say, so that means I can't do computational thinking. No, in fact, that's a that's a symptom of the way the world is. And to sort of get your arms around that is important in kind of understanding the world. Let's see. Uh, couple more things and then I have to go to my day job again. Um, Aaron asks, when you were starting SMP back in 1979, if someone else had already made great progress in building the full-scale computational language, what would you have done? I would have used it. Uh, simple as that. If, if I had not had to build SMP, I would have just used what existed. And uh, I think it's an interesting question whether if I had not gotten deeply engaged in the sort of construction of the thing, would that have not allowed me to learn a lot of things about computation? I think in the end, it might have been a net negative, but certainly locally, it would have been a big positive. I would have just started exploring all kinds of things in physics and computation and so on, just using the tools somebody else built. I mean, it's been... It's been interesting for me at different times, you know, I use tools other folks have built. I mean, like for example, oh, 23 years ago, I was using automated theorem proving, and that's more than that now. No, no, that's, that's about right. Um, I was using automated theorem proving systems where I hadn't built the innards of those systems. I was just a user. Turns out there weren't actually other quotes, just users at that time. The only users were builders at the time of those systems. It's it's a strange thing. People, you know, they're tools people could have used, but they didn't. Same story over and over again. But for me at that time, I would say I used them. I did useful things with them. I discovered some cool things that people in those fields were a little bit shocked could actually be discovered by the tools they built but um, and, and found it a bit disorienting. Uh, but it was, um, uh, you know, I was just a user and I didn't have to build the system. Now, in more recent times, I've gotten much more involved in building those particular kinds of systems, particularly as I've worked on metamathematics and so on. And yes, I have gained quite a bit from my getting inside what has to be done and understanding how one actually builds it. But that was 20-something years later. And at the beginning, I just used it. And I would have been very happy to do that back in 1979, except that the things that I wanted just didn't exist at that time. Uh, Let's see. Rudy asks, any cool projects you enjoyed working with during our summer school? Lots and lots of them. It was great. It's always great. I mean, there's 130 projects between our summer school and our high school program. Um, and most of the projects were ones where I kind of invented them. Um, usually kind of it's an interesting process. You know, you've got people with all kinds of skills and interests. You've got things I've been thinking about, you know, all year or for years. And it's kind of like, can you put these together? And sometimes I'm like really feeling very pleased with myself. Sometimes those ones aren't the ones that work the best. And uh, but it's kind of like, can you match projects to people? It's kind of a, a speed version of what one has to do in running a company is matching projects to people. And so I try to do that. And, uh, you know, I have to say, that essentially all the projects are ones where I'd like to know what comes out. 
you know, it's kind of, it, it's sort of helps motivate me and helps me kind of uh, be able to motivate other people when they're projects where I care about the outcome. And uh, yeah, there were lots and lots of very interesting projects. And in fact, in fact, I haven't even had a chance to, there are a whole bunch where I've kind of pinned them as, as I should understand this project better and what got done. And I haven't just haven't had a chance yet to do that. Hope to in the next few weeks. Um, so I think that's, that's a, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's always, it's a lot of, lot of fun. And I, I hope it's um, valuable to folks who, who do these programs, it seems to be, uh, to kind of, um, uh, you know, create projects. I have to say that, that uh, you know, they're very, very, sometimes the projects that get done are pretty close to being sort of papers. They're much more often close to being things like function repository entries. And, you know, major functions in the language, they're often the seeds for that, but that won't, that won't come to fruition for a while. Things that turn into uh, things that become that are seeds, that's very common. I've been really pleased. It's it's been wonderful actually to see many cases where kind of something that one came up with as this is a good project for this person becomes a seed for what will become sort of a, a whole sort of at least piece of a career of doing sort of extensions of that kind of project. That's really, really, I mean, I I feel good about that when that happens. And uh it's really a um uh, you know, one feels like one seeded something useful. Um, all right, one last question, and then I need to wrap up for today. Uh, Satoshi asks, science somewhat requires integration of many disciplines, but in academia, almost the only way to progress in your career is to publish stuff in your area of expertise. Yes, that's a serious bug in modern academia. Um, it didn't used to be that way. It's a feature of how big academia has become and how streamlined it has had to become by necessity because of its size, so to speak. Um, I don't know what the best way around that is. I think sometimes what you see people do is, well, I'm, I'm doing this one definite thing, but I'm doing these side projects over here. In a sense, I did that. You know, I was a physics professor, basically, and I started doing building computational kinds of things and then studying computational kinds of systems. And, uh, you know, had I um, uh, sort of I had this thing that, you know, in fact, now that I think about it, you know, I got hired to be a physics professor, even though perhaps the most interesting stuff I was doing wasn't physics at that time. Um, and I suppose that's a strategy is you do your day job and then you do the other stuff that is kind of the, the outside the, the core area for which there's a value system built up as kind of a hobby. And maybe in fact, and this has happened to so many people in the course of sort of academic history, that the hobby becomes the thing that they're most known for, whether it's, uh, you know, Charles Dodson, and Lewis, who was a logician, and his uh, Lewis Carroll, his uh, uh, Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland type books, or whether it's, uh, you know, just you can you can talk about a, a whole collection of different academics who've had sort of a, a side gig of, for example, doing things like writing books, or a side gig of becoming an expert in some field that isn't yet really quite a field. They have their day job doing combinatorics or something, but their side gig is becoming the world expert on calendar systems or something. Or they're um, and and then it turns out the thing that they are most known for and where they can make the most progress is that that kind of thing that they kind of started as a side gig. 
I mean, I think that the um, uh, that in a sense, uh, you know, whenever it's kind of almost a a self defeating feature of academia that whenever something becomes uh, sort of uh, big enough that there are systems that let people do it in a routine way, probably the most interesting things to be done in that area have already been done. So it's kind of like, how do you set things up so that people can do the kind of the early stage interesting stuff? But it's not very easy. I mean, at different times in history, for example, I don't know, in Oxford and Cambridge, people would sort of bet on young folk uh, very early in their careers and say, okay, you got a job for life, you do whatever you want. And, and sometimes that would end very badly. But sort of it was a big spectrum of, of results where some are very, very good, lots were mediocre, and some were really bad, um, uh, sort of personally for the people and so on. But I think that's a, that's a thing that's kind of hard to do, particularly in the kind of American style of, of meritocracy and so on, to say, this person, we don't really have a lot of evidence, but let's just bet on them and set them up with this kind of good setup for life. You know, by the way, it's not necessarily kind to the person to do that, because it's only a very thin set of such people who will end up, you know, being very successful in what they do. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, what happens when somebody, you know, inherits or gets early in life, um, you know, a big chunk of money. And then it's kind of like, well, they might, you know, that might be the worst thing that could happen to them. They might, you know, sort of veg out for the rest of their lives, or it might be the very best thing that could happen to them. And they'll take that and use it as a platform to do amazing things. Those are, those are kind of different directions that happen that are very uh, kind of character dependent and, and maybe circumstance dependent, but I think probably more so character dependent. And it's something where, you know, being able to make those bets doesn't feel very meritocratic. Um, but in fact, if you want to have for, the, for society, taking those bets may be the best thing. Not good for the individuals on whom the bets are taken, because they may just veg out. But you know, for society, you know, five percent of those people are going to do fantastic things that are beyond what you could have achieved if you've been just doing the kind of uh, the mainline, large institutional kinds of things. I mean, I suppose in my own life, I've been sort of well, not lucky because I really planned it this way. That you know, I've built myself enough of a kind of things I do for a living that I find interesting to do, and they actually sort of fuel and provide tools for the things that I really want to do from a sort of intellectual point of view. But I kind of don't, I'm not in a situation where I'm kind of like writing grant proposals and having to publish papers in some very narrow area, um, because that's the, you know, that's the tower that I have to live in to sort of get ahead in academia. But I think my best practical advice is do the things you really want to do as hobbies while still doing your day job well enough and maybe one day your hobbies will eat your day job, so to speak, and uh, and everything will be much better. Um, but but you know if the if the day job in some way supports the hobbies, all to the good. But don't expect that academia and its big structures are going to necessarily support the kinds of uh, you know more innovative things that might be in the end the most valuable things you can do. All right, I should wrap up at this point. Um, Thanks for all those interesting questions and uh, see you again another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.